right. Today we're looking at John chapter number one. After the prologue is John jumps into the story. And it's kind of confusing because the writer of this book is a guy named John. And the first story he tells us in his book is about a different guy named John. So what we have here is the writer. He's a guy named John the Beloved, history tells us. John the Beloved, one of Jesus' 12 disciples. He's the one writing the book. And he's telling us about a different guy named John, John the Baptist. So I'll do my best. I'll do my best to always differentiate between the two Johns. But both Johns are really good examples for us. So whichever one it is, it's good. Follow him. He's following Jesus. But I'll try. I'll try to remember to differentiate which John I'm talking about. The main person we're trying to talk about today is John the Baptist. And when it comes to talking about John the Baptist, it is really tempting to just kick off the sermon by telling you everything we know about John the Baptist, because there's so much good stuff to know about him. There's a lot in the scriptures about John the Baptist. He's actually mentioned in all four gospels. Very rarely is a story or a person mentioned in all four. John the Baptist kicks off each one of them. There's a couple of his sermons recorded in Matthew. Huge part of the Christmas story, uh, believe it or not. It has to do with John the Baptist uh, in Luke. You can go check that out. Uh, Mark 1 starts with John baptizing Jesus. A lot we could say just right off the bat, the details of his life and ministry And I kind of wanted to do that. I mean, I wrote like three, four pages on John the Baptist and then realized we're in the book of John, the beloved, okay? So we can't say everything about John the Baptist we want to say. The question that we actually have to narrow down and ask is, what does this guy, John the beloved, what does he want us to know about John the Baptist? That's the important question. That's the word of the Lord for us on this Sunday morning. One thing we know from the end of this book, the book of John written by John the Beloved, is that his main goal in writing for us and to us is our belief. And it's like this kind of belief that he had as Jesus' disciple, right? This kind of belief that leads us to follow him and ditch everything else. This kind of belief that that where we lay our heads on Jesus' shoulder at the Last Supper, fully trusting in him. It's this kind of belief that sticks with Jesus while he's on the cross and he calls out to us and says, take care of my mother. That's what he did with John, and if you don't know that story. Um, you know, it's this kind of belief that gets us to stick with, to stay with, to, to put preeminence in and on Jesus with all we've got because it's that kind of belief that leads to the kind of life John wants us to live. In fact, this is what he says in the last chapter of the book of John, John 20, 31. He's uh, writing the theme of all that he just told us, all that we're about to go through in this series. And he says, these things were written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ and by believing you might have life in his name. What John the Beloved is doing, as he writes, is showing us what real belief is like and how it gives us true and authentic, beautiful, eternal life. So he's showing us today, 
Out of all the things he could show us about John the Baptist, he is showing us the belief of John the Baptist more than the controversies of John the Baptist. Okay, Matthew does that. More than the history of John the Baptist, Luke does that. More than the activity of John the Baptist, Mark's got that. John, the beloved, shows us what John the Baptist believes, and he shows us how that gives him true and real and everlasting life. And I know deep down, really what we all want this morning is that life. It only comes through believing the things that John the Baptist believed. So he highlights the belief of John the Baptist. And how he does it is he kind of breaks it up into two parts, essentially. He highlights two aspects of John the Baptist's belief. He shows us what John the Baptist rightly believes about himself. And he shows us what John the Baptist rightly believes about Jesus. Belief about himself, belief about Jesus. Now, I know that those two things might seem pretty basic, but I believe what we find in the text and what you'll find in your experience is what you believe about these two things is the direct factor in your spiritual life now and forever. Perhaps we could even say it this way. One of the most important things about you is what you believe about yourself. The most important thing about you is what you believe about Jesus. So let's dive in and see, what's John the Baptist believe? First, about himself. What does John the Baptist believe about himself? Well, three kind of odd verses, a little conversation, a snippet of a conversation, back and forth between John the Baptist and some religious leaders of his day. Look at verses 19 through 21 to start out with. It says this. Now this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites, religious leaders, from Jerusalem to go out to him and ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. I'm not God. They asked him, okay, uh, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. I love this. This is John, one word texting the Pharisees. Uh, you ever text someone like your whole spiel? It's like several paragraphs, emojis galore, and they text back, okay, or even worse, K. And you're like, well, that friendship is done. That's over. They hate me, right? This is kind of what John's doing to those guys. He's like, okay. <laughs> Uh, it's a very interesting conversation. And we get to, in a holy way, <laughs> eavesdrop in on it. You got to get the scene of the conversation because it paints a lot of the picture. John the Baptist is not close by. They have to travel out to find him, to see him. This dude is out in the wilderness. The scriptures tell us he is standing beside the Jordan River. He's baptizing people, preaching to a crowd that's gathered way out there to go hear what he has to say because he is a man sent from God. Okay, now he's getting a big enough crowd that these goody two-shoes religious leaders, right, they, they, they're like, we got to go figure out what he's doing. Right, because uh, it sounds like he's breaking a rule, right? One of those type of people who are always looking for you to break a rule. That's these guys. 
They know a lot of Bible, but they're not a lot of fun. And they come all the way out from the city to the edge of that water, out in the wilderness, you know, likely in their robes, like these weird spiritual nightgowns they had to wear. And they come out and they're like, we need to ask a few questions to the leader here. And it's kind of an odd exchange. Like this conversation's a little off, like it doesn't seem to go anywhere really. But at the same time, this is super profound because it shows us an exchange that all of us, all believers, are having with the world all the time. The religious leaders in this text sort of represent the world. They represent non-believers in this text. They represent the status quo. They're actually, these religious leaders, they're actually normal. Right? These are the normal church people. John the Baptist, though, he represents the believer, the true believer, the spirit-filled believer. He, he represents the true church. He represents us. If you look through the conversation, you'll see that the world, the status quo, okay, they got a question for the believer. The world has a question for us who follow Jesus with all our hearts. And here's the religious leader's question, right? At first, it's very cryptic. Who are you? Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? Are you the Christ? Now, before we get into what that question means exactly, I want to give you the question under the question. Okay. The question they're really asking John the Baptist and the question the world is constantly asking you and me, really what it is, is how important are you? That's what they're really asking John the Baptist. That's the question under the question. How important are you? The world is always asking us this question. This question comes from all directions, even fellow believers sometimes. We ask each other, how important are you again? Right? How important are you? Sometimes when someone asks you where you work and how long you've worked there, they're being polite. Sometimes they're asking, how important are you? Sometimes when someone asks you where you went to college or what neighborhood you live in or how many followers you got on Instagram or whatever, sometimes they're making conversation. That's innocent. Sometimes they're asking, how important are you? This happens all the time in the spiritual community, right? So that's actually the context of these verses. This is actually happening in John the Baptist day right here. This is actually happening kind of like about church and it still happens all the time, only not out by the Jordan River in the desert. This is where all of us preachers go down to the Waffle House. Amen. Right? Bless God. New Testament, New Covenant. Waffle House. Okay. It's part of grace. And we go down there. And the first question we ask is, hey, how many people go to your church? How many people go to your church? Sometimes we're genuinely curious. What's your situation? And, and you know, let's talk. Sometimes, though, even the preachers amongst them, we're asking, how important are you? To make matters worse, not only are we being asked this question all the time, but we're really tempted to answer this question. Like, can you imagine how tempted John the Baptist could have been to answer these people? Like, remember some background. At this point, John the Baptist has a huge following. Huge following. He is more newsworthy than these religious leaders and the Pharisees that sent him, them. 
And this whole giant ministry he has going is being built solely on his preaching, solely on the Holy Spirit. I mean, this dude has no building. He has no beauty, no robes, no spiritual nightgowns like the Pharisees, no pomp, no circumstances, right? He's got the, the only ceremony he's even got. Like the only official ceremony he's got to, to show you is dunking you under nasty, dirty, cold water. That's his whole thing. Like that's his outreach plan. Not like come, we're going to have bounce houses. We're going to have giveaways. It's like, hey, come on in. Hold your breath. Trust me with your life. Dunk, right? That's his outreach. And yet this thing is growing. It's this movement. It is, it is, it, it is massive. And his church, if you will, is growing faster than these guys who've been trained. They got seminary. They got the nightgowns. They got the authority. They got the temple. They got the ceremonies. And they come out and they ask him, how important are you? What do you say about yourself? I mean, there's probably something in you, in me, in humanity, maybe even a temptation, slight tug of temptation in John to be like, who am I? Who are you? Right? Like, who am I? I'm your worst nightmare. I'm a real leader. I'm a real teacher of the, 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 the Lord. I'm a real solution to the people's problems. I'm really worth following, unlike you. Perhaps some of you, if not all of us, would have some temptation to answer this way. And I do think for 2022, we tend to tone it down a little bit, right? You may act like, you know, we're just telling you about what's been going on lately, but I don't know if you're anything like me, sometimes we like slide in just one or two details that's going to give us a little bit of credit, right? Like, oh, you know, I'm only making it by God's grace, you know, and, you know, I, I, I have done some really great things lately, but it's all God's crazy or whatever. You know, I can't really do it right now off the top of my head. But the idea of I can do it in conversation with someone I'm trying to impress though, right? Like just say just enough to give me some credit, right? Like that's just, it's just something we're really good at to tell someone, oh, hey, what's your story? Like we're meeting you for the first time. You're meeting me for the first time. Here's my background. Tell you a little bit, but I'm gonna make sure to slip in a detail or two that makes me look superior to somebody, but I'm going to cover it fast though, right? Like, and you know, that was cool. Uh, you know, I'm glad I got that chance, you know, and it's just God, man. You know, and it's just this, it's, here's the idea is that the world is asking us all of the time through so many different channels, how important are you? And here's the, the deal is there's something in our flesh, in our sin nature that wants to answer that question and wants to answer it so loudly because we get some identity out of being important to others and them knowing how important we are. And when we give in and we do, we answer this question, this is what the scriptures call our pride. And here's the thing about that prideful identity. Pride goes before a fall. At some point, pride goes before a fall. And the identity that we thought would hoist us up actually tears us down. I'll use a preacher illustration because John the Baptist is in a preacher situation, not to just dog on preachers all day, but we're talking about a preacher, so all the stories that came to mind were about preachers. I heard of a preacher recently, just heard about this, I'm not involved at all, but he held this huge, big rally downtown Greenville, big evangelistic rally, 
And there was a good bit of people there. And then after the rally, this like kind of evangelistic event with music and teaching, from what I understand, he posted on social media, hundreds of people came to Christ tonight. And that really rang weird with his deacons and some of the other like lay pastors and stuff at his church because they were there at the invitation. They were the ones who were receiving anyone who might come down. And they only counted one person that came down to accept Christ that night. Now, here's the truth. One person coming down to, to, to accept Jesus and have eternal life is a huge win for the kingdom. Amen? That thing was a huge success. It's successful enough for the angels to rejoice in heaven over the one sinner who's repented. But like, it wasn't big enough for him <laughs> to throw a party. And so he goes online, says hundreds of people, long story short, he had to end up, apparently, not maybe because of this, but in, in all of it, he had to step down as, as pastor. And it's just kind of an interesting story of like pride going before some sort of fall. Because we have to, like we feel this temptation, this draw to make ourselves important to everyone around us. And to find identity in that. Jesus put it this way, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. John the beloved, the writer, he wants us to believe like John the Baptist. John the beloved wants us to believe about ourselves what John the Baptist believed about himself. And what did John the Baptist believe about himself? He believed something that kept him from answering these dudes' questions. When they asked, how important are you? What is that belief, John the Baptist, that, that, that grounds you and steadies you in the midst of, of this temptation to grab some other identity and to make yourself a bigger deal than you are to, to someone who's really, in hindsight of history, not that big of a deal? What is that belief? Now, many people right here get this mixed up, and it's so easy to do. I've done it, by, by all means. We th would assume that the belief must be that he, here's what he thinks about himself. I'm not important. I'm not important. Like, we assume, that, okay, pride goes before a fault. Humility is us not being important and not thinking we're important. And that is kind of a logical conclusion. But it's actually a little bit more nuanced, and the text unfolds this. It shows us that John actually doesn't believe that he's unimportant. John even knows he actually is important. It's interesting. But what he believes about himself is this, that it's not important just how important I am. And it's not important that you know how important I am. That's really the nuanced belief. Okay, so let me show you this in the text. It's right there, but it's kind of subtle. I'll show you this. Go back to verse 19 through 21, 19. Who are you? Verse 20, he says, I am not God. I'm not the Christ. If we could get that right, we would be moving forward on this Sunday morning, right? Like, who are you? Not God. Like, good answer. Verse 21, they asked, okay, let's get a little deeper. What then? Are you Elijah? I am not. Are you the prophet? No. Now, this is really peculiar. It's far more than meets the eye in John most of the time. They ask him, are you Elijah? That's, that's a weird question, right? Why do they ask that? Are you Elijah? Because at the end of the book of Malachi, which we just went through, 
uh, in the fall. The last chapter of the Old Testament, the last chapter of the last book of the Old Testament, the scriptures say Elijah is going to come back before the Messiah, Jesus, comes onto the scene. Now, John the Baptist, he actually is that Elijah figure. Jesus confirms this himself when he talks about John the Baptist in places like Matthew and other gospels. Jesus says, no, 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 that's the guy Malachi was talking about. That's the Elijah figure. John the Baptist actually knows he's the Elijah figure. He knows that. Luke tells us that he knows this. It was prophesied over him at birth that he would come in the spirit and the power of Elijah. But he says, I am not Elijah. Is he lying? No. What he is doing, and this is fascinating, is that he is actually refusing to parse out just how important he is. You see, the truth is, John the Baptist did come in the spirit and power of Elijah. These guys, if you study their culture, history, time, whatever, they're mistakenly believing that the forerunner of the Christ would be the actual Elijah, like come back from heaven. And he knows that that's what they mean. So he could take this opportunity to parse it out and say something like, well, I'm actually not Elijah like reincarnated, but I'm, you know, like Elijah, I've got, you know, the same outfit, uh, same diet mostly, and I have his spirit and I have his power and uh, I'm a big deal, right? (laughs) Like parse it out. Like, still a big deal, but no, I'm not actually reincarnated, Elijah. It's a little bit metaphorical. You know, those Old Testament writers, man, they just got a lot. They just thought they were poets and didn't know it. And they, they were just, it's like I'm Elijah. But instead, he just says, I am not. No explanation. He does the same thing when they ask, are you the prophet? Here's the crazy thing. John the Baptist is a prophet. In fact, he's the last prophet under the Old Covenant-style prophet. But the religious leaders of this time and era, they have this misunderstanding. They thought that this guy would be essentially a second Moses, which really Jesus is the second and better Moses. John the Baptist is not the exact type of prophet that that they're talking about. So he could correct them and say, well, I'm not the prophet, but I am a prophet and I'm a significant prophet. I'm the last one. This is the last one you get, guys, and it's me. And he could go into all that. Like, I'm the bridge between the old covenant and the new covenant. It's going to be a big deal. Also, I'm Jesus' second cousin, so, which is true. Look at Luke. Tells us that. But instead, he simply says, no. You the prophet? No. No explanation. And eventually, they just got to like pry it out of this dude in verses 22 and 23. I mean, check this out. They said to him, okay, one last time, who are you that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? What's your resume? What's on your, you know, profile? Tell us, you know, give us the background story. Give us name, address, phone number, social security. Verse 23, he said, this is all I'll say. I am the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord as the prophet Isaiah said. Why did it take them so many tries to get any kind 
of response and answer out of John the Baptist. It's not because he's not important. He is. He is the one Isaiah prophesied would come and prepare the way for Jesus 700 years earlier. He is Elijah. He is the prophet. John the Baptist, his job was essentially to be the opening band for Jesus, who was the main act, right? Like, you know, you go to a show to see someone perform, and what do they have? They have someone open for them to get the crowd ready and wild up and going so that the one you actually really wanted to see has a warmed-up crowd to come out to. That was John the Baptist's job. Get everybody ready. Get everybody gathered. Get things stirred so that Jesus can come into it and start his ministry. That's important. John knows that's important. Some of you think humility is saying, I'm not important. Actually, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that if you're in the body of Christ, you are important. Paul says, like, you might be a small part of the body. You might be the pinky. I don't know about you, but this morning, I'm thankful I got my pinkies. No offense to those of you who have lost them. I bet you wish you had them back, right? It's important. For some of you, you think humility is, okay, I know in a sense I'm important, but I never think about how important I am. No, actually, I hope you do think about how important you are. Uh, Like, you are important to your kids. You are important to your church. We need you to believe that deep down so that you do all the things God has called you to do. Like you should believe and know and think about your purpose and how important it is to the greater story of Jesus and him redeeming the world. Like you should know, like I have a calling and I'm responsible to live out this calling. That's important. He didn't make me for no reason. He didn't call me for no reason. Like he's given me some importance. It's good. Like we are not ever at Griggs preaching a gospel of self-hatred. That's not the gospel. We do hate our sin. For those of you who want to, you know, maybe want to throw, throw down some, you know, theology trivia. Yeah, we hate our sin. But here's the idea, right? It's not so much, hey, don't think that you're important. Don't know you're important. Here's what John believes about himself. This is what John the Baptist believes about himself. This is what we should believe about ourselves. I am important in some sense, but it is not important who knows it. And it is not important just how important I am and to parse that out. When you can get that belief, that balanced belief, that identity, man, you will be completely free. Free from pride, free from the fall, free from the fear of man, free to do whatever God has called you to do. I'll just tell you this about John the Baptist, nobody is more free than that guy. That dude, is the definition of free. He is exactly who God made him to be. He is doing exactly what God called him to do. He's not afraid of anybody. He's not afraid of the Pharisees. He's not afraid of Herod. You'll find that out. He is completely at ease. He does not have to spend all night wondering how he presented himself. What, did I say this right? Did I say that wrong? Did I overshare? That's one of my, I think about that all the time because I'm a textbook oversharer, right? You ask me a question, you get 30 answers and they're all deeply personal. <laughs> and I get home and I'm like, did I overshare? And Joanna's like, yeah, like <laughs> times 10. Like you gave them our account and routing number. <laughs> they asked how your day was going. 
I'm worried about it all the time. Did I overshare? Not John. Is he worried that everyone likes him, knows how much he's doing, knows what he's doing and how big of a deal it is? No, he's free from all that. He is free to simply be a voice that talks about somebody way, way more important. Now, here's a transition for those of you who are tempted to believe that we lose something if people don't know how important we are. Like, for those of you who feel like, well, why would I make a big work of art? And it's important, but I'm not going to sign it. Like, that, doesn't that diminish me? Doesn't that take away my identity? Like, there's not as much thrill in doing what we do if we're not going to get the credit for it. I want to tell you something. All right, here's a truth for you. Whatever identity we give up for Jesus... It is replaced 100-fold by Jesus in the identity he gives us. Whatever prestige, whatever thrill or sense of accomplishment you might forfeit in believing this, it's not important how important I am. That will be replaced 100-fold in believing that it is absolutely vital everybody knows who Jesus is. One of the most important things about you is what you believe about yourself. But the most important thing about you is what you believe about Jesus. We truly believe he's that important. Like this is how crazy we are at Griggs, okay? Get ready, right? You say, well, how, how into this is Griggs? How into this is, is, are these people? There are seven billion people on the planet. I truly believe Every single one of them needs to know Jesus. They all need Jesus. Like, that's how important he is. We believe everybody must come to the Father through the Son. And there is no other way for any of them. None. Nothing. No one is more important than Jesus. This is what John believes about Jesus. What does John believe about himself? It's not important just how important I am. It's not important that you know how important I am. What does John believe about Jesus? Well, he tells us in the next part of the conversation. Look at verse 25. They asked him saying, why do you baptize then if you're not Christ or Elijah or the prophet? Right? Like if you're not concerned with being important to us or to anyone, right, then what makes what you're doing of any importance? Okay, good question. Here's John the Baptist's answer. John said to them, I baptize with water, but there stand ones among you who you don't know. Who's he about to talk about? Jesus. It is he who is coming after me, is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to loose. So they come in, why are you baptizing? Like, how is that meaningful or important? John simply replies, it's just fascinating. This is just fascinating. It's interesting. You gotta love the Bible. John replies, I baptize with water. <laughs> it's like, 
We saw that, John. Like, thank you, Captain Obvious. Like, that's my job description. I baptize with water. He does not go into how important baptism is. Notice, he doesn't say what the symbol is. Oh, these people have repented and been forgiven. He does not get all defensive about his baptism and why it's such a big deal. In fact, if you look, I mean, to me, it's almost funny. Like, I do this to myself a lot. He cuts himself off in verse 26. It's like he dismisses the part of the conversation, this part of the conversation about himself and what he is doing. He's like, I baptize with water, but who cares? Let me tell you what's really important. Before I get into, like, he doesn't even go into the theology behind all that and why he's a big deal. He, he, he just cuts off that part of the conversation, and he says, what's really important is there is a soon-coming Messiah. His ministry is about to start here on earth, but actually, it started way before I even got here. It started before all of us got here because he was in the beginning, because in the beginning was the word. I'm talking about God in the flesh, a man and a ministry so incredibly important, a man and a ministry that is such a big deal. I'm not even worthy to be his butler. I'm not even important enough to take off his shoes when he gets into the house like the servants of these days would do. Here's what John believes about Jesus. Nothing and no one is more important than Jesus. What's truly important is that everyone knows just how important he is. It is not important that everyone knows I'm important. It is not important that everyone knows just how important I am or that I know even how important I am to a T. But what is important is that everyone knows he's important and everyone knows just how important he is. Is that how you feel this morning? That Jesus is such a big deal, you're not even worthy to untie those sandals. Sometimes I feel that way. And then other times I'm fooled. Sometimes I can see nothing, no one is more important than Jesus. Sometimes I get fooled. And it feels like somehow or another, nothing and no one is more important than my comfort. Like one way or another, sometimes, I don't bet you, I get turned around. I'm like, wait, money's the most important thing, Right? Like, 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 you give me a couple days and it's very easy for me to drift into believing the most important thing is my family. The most important thing is my free time. Or to put it in the context of this exact text and exactly what's going on, sometimes when people ask me about my ministry, I forget that what I do is not what's important. It's who I'm doing it for. That's what's important. That's the most important thing. For a second, it, sometimes it feels like nothing and no one is as important as my work. I need to build something. It's got to be beautiful. It's got to make an impact. It's got to be a story worth telling. And I get all caught up in ministry. Instead of feeling unworthy to untie Jesus' sandals, I feel too busy to untie Jesus' sandals. Now, John the Baptist, he seems to pass this test. I know I've failed this test at times. What about you? Have you failed this test? Perhaps you're failing it now. Someone, right now, something, right now, seems so much more important than Jesus. 
And you know what that'll lead us to? Is sin. Some sort of sin. This is why the Ten Commandments start, have no other gods before me. Because when you get that wrong, you're going to commit one of the other nine of these commandments. Whenever we forget that nothing and no one is more important than Jesus, it leads us to sin. And this can be a big deal because sin has consequences. You remember Peter when he was in the boat, he's got his friends with him, and it's a dark and stormy night, and he sees Jesus walking on the water. Literally, the Bible says they thought it was a ghost, right? So, I don't know, that's just kind of funny to me. Like, Peter, he's like, oh, my word, a ghost, you know? And they're like, I don't know, man. Like, we just got all this information about the spiritual realm from God, and it doesn't seem like ghosts are one of the things. Like, you know, maybe a demon, maybe an angel, but I don't know, dude. Why are you talking about ghosts? Like, you're creeping me out. Like, I could just see Thaddeus, like, please don't talk about that. He's like, who is that out there? And then they find out, uh, that's Jesus. He's walking on the water. And Peter, is like some of you, kind of a thrill seeker, doesn't think through things a ton. And he's like, can I come out there? And Jesus is like, sure, come on out. And he goes to walk out to Jesus. You remember the story? And he's walking on water. And then, you know, the storm is getting a little worse and the waves are getting a little higher. And he takes his eyes off Jesus and he starts drowning. And all his buddies are back in the boat laughing, like, you're about to be a ghost, right? <laughs> and he's about to drown. And here's the idea of, like, that's exactly who we are. Like, when we let anything, anything get us so big, get so huge, that untying Jesus' sandals for him is an afterthought, we're going to start feeling like we're drowning, Anyone out there, you feel like you're sinking from time to time. It probably has to do with what you're believing about, Jesus. So how does it turn around? Here's how it turns around, and we get back on track, is that Jesus shows up, and he reveals to us who he really is. I mean, look at what happens the next day. The day after this conversation with the Pharisee people, John the Baptist, he's back out in the wilderness, out at the river, and he meets face-to-face -face that ever-important person he was just talking about. This shows us what he believes about Jesus. Look at verse 29 through 34. The second half of the text, we'll read it all. It says, the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. I didn't know him, but that he should be revealed, that's why I've been baptizing with water, though I haven't seen him yet. And John bore witness saying, I saw the spirit descending from heaven like a dove and he remained upon him. I didn't know it was him. Like we didn't have some conversation in the back room but he who sent me, God, to baptize with water said to me, when you see upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, that is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen that. And so I testify to you, this is the Son of God. This is what is called the testimony of John the Baptist concerning Jesus. Here we have six verses of John's testimony, and it is a whole lot. Like, we could easily, easily do six sermons right here. No chance we could ever cover the depth of the incredible nature of these statements. I saw online that the largest ball of twine 
is in Minnesota. It weighs 17,400 pounds. It has a 12-foot diameter. And I said to myself, it would be easier and faster to untangle that thing than to untangle these six verses. That's how much is in there. But we'll get the gist of it the best we can by making four points. One, John the Baptist says, Jesus is God. Jesus is God. Jesus is not sort of God or like God or a God. He is God. He is the only God. He is the true God. He is the great God. He is the second member of the triune God, God the Son, the Son of God in a human body. One, he is God. That's what John the Baptist believes about Jesus. Two, he says Jesus is the gentle God. This God-man was fully anointed by God the Holy Spirit. John says, I didn't know him, right? Like we didn't have a previous conversation and plan all this out, this meeting out. I'm finding this out in real time, just like you. But whenever God called me to this ministry, he told me, hey, when you see the Spirit descending like a dove, the guy he descends on is the one we're talking about. That's the Son of God. That's the gentle God. When it came to Jesus and his baptism, the spirit did descend on him like a dove. And this is huge. You remember Noah's Ark. How did we know the flood was over? How did we know the wrath of God had found its resting place? How did we know the wrath of God had been satisfied on the wickedness of man? Noah sends out that dove and it brings back an olive branch. And the dove becomes the symbol of peace for these Jewish people, these people of this age. And when it came to Jesus and his baptism, that dove descended on him. And to this culture, the idea was that this dove descending on this God, the idea is that this is the harmless one, the gentle one, the peaceful one. The Holy Spirit's not a dove, okay, but in front of this whole crowd out there by the Jordan River in the wilderness, he descends on Jesus like a dove, visibly and physically, and this means that he is the one empowered to be gentle and harmless towards sinners. To bring the wrath of God to an end for those who disobeyed the law to be the setting place, the settling place for the punishment of sin so that you don't have to be that place. <laughs> Jesus himself, after this scene, when he's back home in Nazareth, he says, I'm the gentle God. He's speaking in Nazareth at his own synagogue and he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor he sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty those who were oppressed. It is such good news that nothing and no one is more important than Jesus because no one is more gentle with us than Jesus. Amen. This is good news. He does us no harm, all harm. He took out on himself for those who will believe. What's crazy is that he then goes and he makes us gentle and lonely, lowly, kind, loving as Christians. 
It says here that he baptizes us with that same Holy Spirit. So Jesus is God. John the Baptist believes Jesus is the gentle God. John the Baptist believes Jesus is the life-changing God. Verse 33, he baptizes us with the Holy Spirit. Now, you've got to think about the scene. John the Baptist is out in the wilderness in the river with these dudes. And I'm talking about these are some rough dudes. These are like the people John the Baptist rolled with. These are, these are ga former gang members, thieves, prostitutes, and human traffickers. These are deadbeat dads. These are, these are outcasts. They're people who do not fit in at the temple but they're repentant of their sin. And so he is dunking them under the water to show their sin is washed away. And that they have this new life waiting for their Messiah who was soon to come and on this day did come in this text. And he says to these same people, some of the worst people, mind you, the ones that make you lock your doors when you're sitting in the car in the parking lot and they walk by with their shopping cart or whatever. Like, oh. He says to them, right, that Jesus, in the same way I dunked you in water, he's going to dunk you in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will make you harmless and gentle like a dove. Jesus changes our lives and he makes us harmless and gentle towards the broken. We see this in the church all the time, people becoming harmless and gentle. I'll give you one just illustration off the top of my head. Like uh, Christmas time. I just remember this great guy. Love this guy. Great guy. But it's a dude who spent a lot of, he was from the Overcomers program. He came with us to our Pomel Christmas thing where we go take all the Pomel kids to Walmart and Roger and um, gives them, you know, the gift card. We give them a hundred bucks a kid and they go and they, they shop for their own Christmas presents. It's a cool thing. I, I remember there's a guy there who had spent a lot of his life in prison, face tattoos and scars, and he's serving at Griggs and he's walking a little Pomel kid around Walmart and stacking up his cart this Pomeal kid's cart, smile, huge smile on his face. Legos, my little pony, Pikachu. What's that? What's going on there? What's that? What's that picture? That's the work of the Holy Spirit. That guy has been baptized in the Holy Spirit and it has made him harmless and gentle. This is what Jesus does in us and for us. And it's good news. It's this beautiful thing we get to see over and over again. In fact, I would say that sometimes he doesn't just do this in our salvation. He does it on a daily basis in our sanctification. In fact, uh, a couple weeks ago, I was really feeling stressed about something, like just consuming my mind. And we live right by uh, Walgreens, and I had walked over there to Walgreens, and this thing's mulling on my mind, stress, everything's on me, I gotta figure this out, I gotta do it all, I gotta do it perfect, I gotta do it well, what's, you know, all this is going on. I walk into the Walgreens, I walk out of the Walgreens, can't remember what I was there to get. I walk out of, out of the Walgreens, and there is a blind, homeless lady sitting by the door of the Walgreens. And it's probably, I don't know, I, I didn't really go super deep into it with her, but it's probably that she became blind from her drug use or something, but she was blind, had a cane, cannot see. Homeless lady. And she said, who's out there? And she's got her cane, you know? And I was like, all right, well, what's up? My name's Mitch. Uh, just here to, I don't know, get something. I forget what it was, right? Tylenol, probably, because you know, had a headache from all this stress. 
And she's like, I need someone to walk me across the street to this Mexican grocery store that's right by there on Whitehorse Road. And I can't, I'm blind. I'm totally blind, 100% blind, legally blind, cannot get over there by myself. Can you get me over there? And I'm like, this is an amazing, I didn't ask for it. I'm not good enough for it. I'm unworthy of this opportunity. I'm unworthy of it. I'm not important enough for this. This is the work of Jesus. But I did, I got to, I said, absolutely. I'll, t- I'll take you wherever you want to go. I'm not a big walker, but with you, I'll take a walk. And I literally got to, this is a true story. I'm, I literally found myself that day with all that stress. It's kind of, I mean, I'm not like trying to act like it was never a stressor again, like some miracle cure, but there was a lot less stress as I literally took the hand of a blind old lady and walked her across the street over to the Mexican grocery place so she could sit on this bench and panhandle. Jesus shows up and he baptizes us with the spirit and he makes us this new kind of person that isn't super worried about how important we are and what we got going on and what all our time needs to go to and what our to-do list has to be and what everybody needs to know about us. He's this one who transforms our life. He changes our life. He makes us gentle and lowly. Jesus is the God who changes us. Jesus is the Lamb of God. In fact, this is the first thing he says back up in verse 29. Look at verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God. He takes away the sin of the world. This, this, is, this is it. This is the whole Bible in a sentence. The most important thing about you is that you believe this. The most important thing about you is what you believe about Jesus and there is nothing and no one more important than Jesus because no one else is able or willing to take away all your sin. Jesus is the Lamb of God. Under the old covenant of the Bible, all the way back, Genesis has it, Leviticus, Exodus, all those early books, you see it. Atonement for sin could be made by the sacrificing of a lamb. Essentially, we're fallen human beings. We end up thinking something's more important than God. Like we said, this leads us to sin. It leads us to the consequences of our sin. Those consequences overwhelm us, especially since... One of the initial consequences for our sin is separation from God himself. God is holy. We are sinful. How are we going to have a relationship? Well, in the Old Testament of the Bible, God made a temporary way. And that was by bringing a lamb without blemish and without spot to an altar. You would put your hand on its forehead, signifying the transfer of your sin to the lamb, the substitute. You would then slaughter the lamb with your family You would take the blood, sprinkle it on the horns of the altar. The blood would be caught and collected down in a basin and you would have atonement for sin. You would be forgiven of sin. Your debt would be paid for God, but it was temporarily, temporarily. See, Hebrews tells us the blood of animals like a lamb cannot take away our sin permanently. What this was like, this Old Testament system, it was like paying off the minimum payment on a credit card, right? Like it satisfies the company for like one more month, but you still owe some debt, so we'll be back. Like it's not permanent. 
It's the same thing with this system of the lambs. They had to sacrifice one and then another after the other after the other. They spent their whole lives sacrificing lambs. And they were never done paying off the debt, really, in one sense. But at this moment in John 1, at the appointed time, at the fullness of time, when it had come, God sent his lamb down to the altar of a bloody Roman cross. And this lamb was truly without blemish and spot. Jesus Christ, the sinless one, and all of our sin. It's like we all collectively took our hand and put it on that crown of thorns on his head. All of our sin was laid upon him, the iniquity of us all. And he bled and he died for us. His blood has been sprinkled, not on the altar, but on our conscience, totally and completely clearing it. Not just the interest has been paid, Jesus paid it all. Paid in full were his last words. It is finished. Some of you need to know this this morning because you ask God every night to save you and you do one sin and then you ask forgiveness for that sin like 55 times. God, forgive me, God, forgive me, God, forgive me. Maybe you need to change your mantra to God has forgiven me. You know, the good news is something for you to enjoy. That's why it's good news. And some of you, the sin that you're here with is you do not enjoy your salvation. God has forgiven me. God has forgiven me. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. He has cast it our sin into the depths of the sea. He remembers our sin no more. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all our unrighteousness. Take a deep breath this morning and say to yourself, my sin has been taken away. Here's at least one thing that means for us and it means for John the Baptist. Whatever identity we think we give up for Jesus is replaced 100 fold by the identity Jesus gives us in return. Whatever prestige or thrill or sense of accomplishment we might forfeit, forfeit rather, in believing it's not important that you know how important I am. It's not important just how important I am. All of that is replaced a hundredfold by believing it is important that you know how Jesus is, how important Jesus is, and it is important that you know just how important he is because he takes away our sin so that now our identity cannot be in what we do, but in what he's done. And that is so much better than identity than we could come up with, or that even John the Baptist could come up with on his own. The Pharisees want to know, who is John the Baptist? How important are you? The world's always asking you, who are you? And here's the answer in Jesus. I'm forgiven, and I'm adopted, and I am redeemed, and I am ransomed. I am baptized in the spirit. I am a new creation. I'm eternally alive. I am chosen. I am justified. I am free. I'm a co-heir with Christ. I am a child of God. I am a saint. I am a missionary. I am the church. I am God's friend. I am a voice saying, hey, prepare the way of the Lord. How much better of an identity is that than I'm kind of like Elijah, 
Not super like Elijah, but like kind of. I'm kind of like that prophet you're talking about. Not exactly. I can talk good. You should know that. See, John the Beloved is writing about the belief of John the Baptist in this way because he wants you all to believe the same way. One of the most important things about you is what you believe about yourself. Like John the Baptist, you've got to embrace. It's not, how imp- it's not about how important you are. The most important thing about you is what you believe about Jesus. Like John the Baptist, you've got to believe that nothing and no one is more important than that guy. And if you will believe this, you will be his people and he will be your God and he will give you a hundredfold better identity than you could come up with. So here's the questions as the musicians come up and as we transfer into a time and transition into a time of worship to Jesus. I think the question for you this morning is what do you need and ask, ask the spirit. Maybe bow your head, maybe close your eyes for a second, just start to pray before we worship. What do you need to start believing? Like really believing, like believing the way John the Beloved believed it, believing the way John the Baptist believed it. What do you need to start believing? Maybe a question is, what do you need to stop believing? See what the Holy Spirit tells you about this. What lies do you need to stop believing? Or maybe that you have belief and you're living kind of like me, like sometimes, this up and down life. You know, and you need to ask the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, what am I believing rightly but that I need to hold on to? I need to keep believing. What do I need to keep believing? Affirm in me where I am seeing the truth and show it to me, illuminate it to me that I don't lose it come Monday morning. I know one thing you need to believe is this. He, on the cross, has taken away all your sin. And that's something worth thinking about. Like, you're free. Like, it's over. Like, you're going to heaven. You're going to heaven. (laughs) Hallelujah. The perfect place is ready for you because your record is now perfectly clean because the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. Repent, believe, trust him, be saved. If you're not, if you are saved, remember who you really are. You're important, but it's not how important you are that's at stake. You're important so that you can point people to know and so that you can know personally that no one and nothing's more important than Jesus. Let's sing, let's worship. If you wanna grab your hymn books, we're gonna sing number two.